If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. If we recognize now institutional philanthropy, you know, that's encompassing more of foundations, individual donors, you know, rich, wealthy people giving mainly sometimes for, you know, the, t- the tax loophole, the tax credit and so on. And, but there is, yes, a, a necessary change. And I think as we're thinking forward about how institutional philanthropy needs to change, we have to look backwards and think about how philanthropy, this act of giving, has always existed and how we go back to those foundational roots and values in traditional ways of being and knowing to move forward towards this transformation. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to holistic healing, eco-regeneration, and true abundance and wellness for all. This is a community-backed show. That's what allows us to be unfiltered and go into every territory that we possibly can. So if you find our work valuable, you can support us at patreon.com slash green dreamer. We are hoping to reach our next Patreon goal as soon as possible so we can continue on with our next season beyond episode. 300. And if every person listening to this right now who has just $2 to spare chipped in, I'm sure we would get there in no time. So thank you so much for your support, whether through joining our Patreon if you can, or otherwise sharing episodes you enjoy and leaving us a five-star review for the show. Before I introduce our guest, I wanted to let you know quickly that I just joined the live audio social media app called Clubhouse. It's still slowly being rolled out as an invite-only app, which I dislike. but they are opening it up more and more um, every day as they build their capacity to accommodate their rapid growth. So hopefully it'll be widely available soon. And I never say this about social media in general, but as a podcaster, I've been really loving it. And this is not sponsored, but it's kind of like a live interactive podcast where listeners can raise their hands and contribute or ask questions. And I just think that unlike most other platforms, it's designed to be a lot more humanizing and hold space to foster genuine conversations. So I do plan to hopefully start uh, hosting live discussions, panels, and maybe even debates in the app as an extension of 
of this show, Green Dreamer Podcast. So if you're interested and make your way over, you can find me there at Kamea, K-A-M-E-A, and follow me so you'll get notified whenever I schedule discussions. Anyhow, our guest today is Daisy Frankor, who is also in Clubhouse because we've connected through it and I know she loves it too. So you can definitely find her there as well. But Daisy is the Director of Strategic Partnerships and Communications at the nonprofit Cultural Survival, whose Executive Director Galena we had on this show before. As an Indigenous fundraiser, philanthropic advisor, and donor educator, Daisy strives to build the capacity of philanthropy, foundations, and individual donors by transforming their understanding of Indigenous rights, Indigenous issues, biocultural diversity, climate and social justice, as well as other regenerative systems. So we're going to hear about the limitations and shortcomings of institutional philanthropy, how that ties into the nonprofit industrial complex, what it means to indigenize philanthropy, and so much more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Sigwili Skanagoga, Daisy Niyungyak, Anawa Niwagi Dolodan, Onayade Aga Niwagun Hujonta. Hi, my name is Daisy Frankor. I'm a member of the United Nation of Wisconsin, which is a tribe in the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. Our ancestral territory is in upstate New York in lower Canada, but through waves of colonization and migration, we now reside on the land of the Menominee in Oneida, Wisconsin. And I am a member of my nation's turtle clan. I started my career mostly as a direct service provider. Within the context of nonprofits, I worked in corrections and I worked in mental health and mainly because I saw a lot of my peers at a really young age get into the system unjustly and systemically. And so I worked as a social worker in prisons in the Wisconsin State Correction System and then following that in the mental health sector, um, helping our Native communities and relatives transition out of the system. And so Starting at that point, all of my work was grant funded and all of my positions ended because the grants were not renewed. Mm. Following that, I, I started to work in education. I went back to school and got my master's degree. And I was working for a nonprofit in Chicago that was focused on supporting immigrant, refugee, and undocumented youth. And again, my position ended because a grant wasn't renewed. And so from the start of my career, I was really affected by philanthropy unknowingly. And then after um, some time working in those positions, after I got my master's, I wanted to kind of reset my career. And I was looking and looking and couldn't find a job and came across this job for a program officer position for a private foundation in California for the Christensen Fund. And I applied because I just needed a job at the time. And I, even at that moment, I didn't even know what philanthropy was. And so I went for it and I got it. And I up and moved to California from Wisconsin, from my community, across the country, never been there, and just kind of went on a whim. And that was my, my kind of journey into philanthropy through nonprofits of working for different positions and sectors that were really based off of whether we were going to get the funds to continue that work or not. And then from there, working for the foundation, I was deeply immersed in philanthropy. So going from one end 
of not really understanding philanthropy, how it affects the work, how it affects movements, how it affects the services that we provide to our communities, to then being on the other side and intimately understanding how philanthropy really, in many ways, directs the way that our movements and the way that people organize and the way that communities support each other. So this whole idea that the world of philanthropy needs to be questioned may be quite new to our listener because people might think, isn't philanthropy all about giving and doing good? So to go back to the basics, how exactly does this world function for somebody who's not familiar? As in, how does money flow through this world from maybe foundations to nonprofits to the actual work that needs funding? And what are some of the problems that you've witnessed from this world? Right. So I think to answer that, we have to step back and recognize that philanthropy has something that has always existed in our communities, especially in indigenous communities and local communities. And philanthropy really is the act of giving out of abundance for the welfare of all, right? And so this has always existed in our communities, especially in in my community in the way that we support each other. And sometimes that's now through financial resources and but then and and still to this day is through trading and barter and, and the way that our economies have always existed. But if we recognize now institutional philanthropy, you know, that's encompassing more of foundations, individual donors, you know, rich, wealthy people giving mainly sometimes for, you know, the the tax loophole, the tax credits. And so on. And but there is, yes, a, a necessary change. And I think as we're thinking forward about how institutional philanthropy needs to change, we have to look backwards and think about how philanthropy, this act of giving, has always existed and how we go back to those foundational roots and values in traditional ways of being and knowing to move forward towards this transformation. Mm. So it seems like obviously the act of giving out of abundance, that's always going to be regenerative and helpful to a community. But maybe the more institutional forms of philanthropy we have today is where some of the issues start to arise. And so within our dominant system, on the one hand, we have an extractive capitalistic economic system. And in many people's minds, they might say, at least we have this whole philanthropic sector to sort of balance that out and focus on giving back. But I'm wondering, what are some of the ways in which uh, maybe the institutional forms of philanthropy may have been strengthening and empowering the extractive economy. So rather than acting as a balancing force in our society, it's maybe even served as an aid to justify the exploitive system. Yeah, so I, w- I definitely agree. I think philanthropy in many ways has fueled extractive practices in the United States, not just in the sector, but in our society. And to understand that, we have to understand the roots of philanthropy, at least institutional philanthropy here in the United States. And philanthropy in its institutional modern form was really birthed as a tax haven for the rich. And so what it did is it allowed the wealthy to further protect and hoard their resources. And this took place at the beginning, or sorry, during World War One, where the United States amended the Constitution and its federal tax code to allow for charitable tax-deducting contributions to finance the war. And so businesses and individuals, they took advantage of these changes post-war to further protect their assets and profits from federal taxes. And that's what has led to the birth of a lot of foundations 
or charitable giving in the United States. And that is really kind of the basis for many, not all, but for many and why charitable giving emerged in the United States. Now, everyone gives for different reasons, and, and oftentimes it's done in a good intentional way to heal a lot of the damage that exists on our planet, in our societies, and to support transformation, and for whatever reason, right, everyone gives for different ways. But institutional philanthropy, still in its modern form, recognizing those roots, definitely reinforces extraction. And that's one through project-based funding rather than long-term general support funding that takes place just in example in that funders are sometimes and oftentimes are inaccessible to their grantees by design, right? An example of that is, is wealthy individuals funding communities and organizations through donor-advised funds. So really limit, limiting, minimizing, or actually totally eliminating the relationship between the funder or the donor and the community and the organization. And so what shows up in institutional modern day philanthropy is this missing component of real relationships. And when there isn't real relationships, there's a lack of real communication, honesty, integrity, dignity. Now, those things do exist. There, some of those relationships do exist, but the basis of how philanthropy is today really lacks that and reinforces this very extractive and transactional way of operating, way of, of communicating, way of giving. So some people might say, you know, as long as the financial resources are being handed out, isn't that what is needed to fund the work that needs to be done? So what sorts of, I guess, changes could building direct relationships with the source of the funding, what sorts of changes could that inspire? In our Indigenizing Philanthropy series, a, a series by Cultural Survival, uh, we talk about, we have one article specifically that talks about shifting grant-making practices from extractive to reciprocal. And some of those examples to, to move forward in a good way, to build better relationships, is really rooted in the four R's of Indigenous philanthropy, which was created by International Funders for Indigenous Peoples, IFIP. And that those four R's are respect, reciprocity, relationships, and responsibility. And those four R's are the foundational basis and value system uh, for the ways that Indigenous peoples and Indigenous-led funds specifically engage with their grantee partners, the way that they give, the way that they're in relationship with. But for institutional philanthropy, there's a lot that they can learn from Indigenous-led funds and Indigenous philanthropy in the ways that we give today in the way that we the ways that we have always given back to our communities. But to some recommendations or solutions that institutional philanthropy can can take uh, or apply from indigenous peoples are in our leadership and our value systems is really thinking through their own leadership and how and increasing representation of BIPOC and specifically indigenous executives board members, senior staff, consultants, experts, a part of their institutions, and not just in foundations, but all institutions, right? We need to, to move forward with balanced decision-making 
So not always having top-down solutions or top-down decision-making isn't always the best solution. And how can we build more bottom-up, regenerative um, processes of decision-making that are collective decision-making that are based off of the communities that we serve? And another solution uh, that institutional philanthropy can apply as they're moving away from extractive practices is recognizing that in this work, there's perpetual learning, ongoing learning that needs to take place, right? And that even for myself, I never like to say that I'm an expert in anything because I'm always learning. I'm always learning from my community, the communities that I serve, my peers, my friends, my loved ones, everyone around me. And something I know today you know, I might learn something new today, but I didn't know that yesterday. And so does that make me an expert today? And But I wasn't yesterday. All that to say is we're always learning and foundations need to create institutional priorities that are reflected in their budgeting around perpetual learning that is done alongside of the communities that they serve. A few other things to add to that, as especially in the context of relationships, In philanthropy and in charitable giving, there's always an imbalance in power dynamics because a foundation, you know, whether they believe this or not, they're they're holding money over someone's head, Mm -hmm. even if it's given in a good way, right? And so aiming for relationships that are reciprocal. So what are the other ways that foundations can give back to a community? What are the non-financial ways? that we can support each other, that we can be allies to each other, and that we can work in solidarity with. So really thinking about and centering reciprocity in our relationships and having continual conversations about that. Like a funder or you know, a grantee can should have a conversation or have a part of every part of their conversation and ask themselves, is this relationship reciprocal? If not, what can we do together to make this relationship reciprocal? And that those are some that answering that question should be done together. So in addressing power dynamics and working towards reciprocal relationships. And also, I think there needs to be a shift in philanthropy in terms of thinking around giving. And that shift should should go away from giving and towards gifting. Gifting, when you gift something, there is no expectation of anything in return. And oftentimes when we're giving in the cont- in modern philanthropy, there's this expectation that you're going to receive something in return, right? That's a report. There's this expectation that foundations are you know, going to fulfill their mission through this grantee, that they're going to do something or or be something as a result of that donation. But if you're gifting something, you're you're gifting it without an expectation of something in return. And it's liberating. I think that that is an act of liberation, both for the foundation and releasing those, those resources, oftentimes that they do hoard and just institutional philanthropy hoards, and is liberating for the community and the organization to receive those funds without restriction, Mm. to receive those funds without an expectation that you're going to do something for me in return. 
and can actually do the good work freely without those strings held over their head. Right. I was going to ask you whether there are ever any conflicts between how a community might judge the success of some sort of initiative and how the funders might judge the success of what they're giving money to. So whether there are differences in how people view or want to quantify the metrics of success. Oftentimes in Western methodologies and Western evaluation, it's still very extractive, right? It's it's like, oh, X amount did this to perform this outcome, or this is the indicator of this outcome. And it's, it's just very extractive, and it really lacks holism. And for Indigenous peoples, when we think about success, we think about, and we think about our livelihoods, we think about it holistically. And we recognize the interdependence amongst all living things. And oftentimes, foundations will actually have preset requirements or expectations around evaluation. And that takes place oftentimes in the decision-making process that itself for foundations and philanthropy of deciding, you know, they'll ask questions about your evaluation metrics or your outcomes. And if it's not aligned with what they've already created in their, their mind themselves or their expectations or their actual processes, that'll oftentimes lead to organizations and communities not receiving funding. If you do make it past that um, hurdle and you do get the award, then sometimes that information that's already preset doesn't become available until after. And then therefore organizations and communities sometimes have to revamp or redesign their evaluation, right? Or that they're just not able to fulfill fully carry out their work in the way that they want to, right? And so I think philanthropy really lacks the respect for an understanding of self-determination, especially when it comes to evaluation and evaluative metrics. And just even understanding like how if and how something is successful. And and I think that is also rooted in the lack of trust that exists for BIPOC communities and BIPOC organizations and the lack of trust that exists that we know and we are the experts of our own futures and our own livelihoods. And so it's to me, it's actually rooted in lack of trust. Mm. And that's reflected in these kind of set expectations and requirements around evaluation and those metrics. this the last time that I will see your face? Is this the last time that I'll be with you in this place? And I don't know it's over. No, I don't know it for sure.
In learning about the big players monopolizing power across various sectors, such as through the medical industrial complex, military industrial complex, media industrial complex, and so forth, I've also come across this term, the nonprofit industrial complex. If this is something you feel comfortable speaking to, how does this tie into the picture of what we had just discussed? Yeah, so the nonprofit industrial complex is really predicated off of for-profit businesses and for-profit ways of being, right? Capitalism. And I think to me, as you're talking about everything, blank industrial complex, blank industrial complex, to me, it's all rooted in white supremacy. It's all rooted in capitalism. It's all rooted in colonialism. So all these institutions, all these sectors that exist today are rooted in the history and the founding, in quotes, of this country, right? And so to me, it's like you have to start from the beginning, right? As colonizers and settlers came to the United States, you know, with the doctrine of discovery and with manifest destiny, to me, at least, that transcended into colonialism, that transcended into capitalism, that transcended into white supremacy. And it doesn't have to be in that order, but they're all, to me, they're all synonymous. They're all the same thing. And because we haven't had a true, real conversation in this country as a collective, as a society about our roots, the, the actual truth of in history, these things, these extractive ways of being in its contemporary form shows up in every institution. And nonprofits, while they're still designed to to give back, to be an institution that um, gives back and gives charity uh, services and support and resources to communities that need it most, addressing some of the most dire issues in our society, it's still rooted in an extractive way of being and operating, which is similar to the for-profit sector, which is similar to the government sector, which is similar to the military. All of these, to me, non-Indigenous systems are very extractive. And that starts with understanding the history of not only this country, but where also those ways of thinking stemmed from prior to the United States being called the United States. Clearly, there are a lot of systemic and very deep problems um, in our society and within the world of institutional philanthropy that need to be addressed. The other thing I wanted to bring up is we've talked before on the show about how it's not really possible for an individual or a single entity or nonprofit to achieve ethical purity inside of an exploitive and extractive system, because then it's just about how far removed one can be from the direct sources of harm and extraction and how what how privileged one can be to sort of invisibilize those problems. Even, for example, this show is primarily listener supported. And the primary purpose of that is just so we can remain as free of corporate influence as possible, which can lead to self-censorship of certain topics. And we want to be able to critique anything and everything without holding back. But that to me is not about us achieving moral superiority because, I mean, which of our listeners are likely going to have more money to gift to us? If this system is set up in a way which 
undervalues labor and Earth's resources to begin with and legalizes exploitation, then we're going to end up, generally speaking, with individuals and corporations who benefited most from that skewed valuation, having the most financial resources to give. And then all of these efforts to do good that were systemically undervalued, including essentially all charity work, are now reliant on the mercy and generosity of the people and corporations that benefited the most from this extractive system. So what comes to your mind here when it comes to understanding how a lot of our abilities to do good, such as through nonprofit work, are contingent upon and tied to resources likely made possible at certain points that caused harm? Mm -hmm. I think for me, as you were sharing this, made me think about just my own personal identity as an Indigenous woman, as a mixed Indigenous woman, um, my mom is Oneida, my dad is white. And recognizing while I grew up on a reservation and grew up in my community, you know, I've also lived in other communities that were not reservations and recognizing that I live in two worlds, right? So I live and carrying my traditions, my culture, all of that with me and that identity. And I also live in a modern contemporary world. And so I have to walk these two lines. And so I think in the context of a nonprofit and more so a nonprofit that is really working towards shifting paradigm or creating paradigm shifts, shifting the narrative, reclaiming the narrative and and therefore shifting consciousness and behaviors. I think it's, we can't deny that we still contribute, maybe reinforce and uphold some of these extractive systems. But we recognize that we can't undo these systems overnight. And that as long as we have do this in a good way, um, with integrity, with love, with compassion, with empathy, and our conscious of some of those extractive systems that surround us that at times we have to uphold, right? Even for example, like having a bank, having a bank account with a major banking institution because we have to be a part, we have to have a major banking institution because that's what's required, right? And getting a grant fund, we're still in some way reinforcing maybe that extractive sector and what it does in terms of extracting land and fueling extractive industries. But we, rec- but we try to recognize the other ways that we can mitigate and address and shift the paradigm. And so it's not to deny that we are a part of that system, that we're all a part of that system, and that system can't be changed overnight. But to be aware of that and to make decisions when we can, when we have that opportunity to minimize that or to, to mitigate that. On a related note, in exploring our paths forward, you talk about our need to indigenize philanthropy, and you make it a point to specifically use the word indigenize as opposed to decolonize. So how would you distinguish the two, and what would indigenizing philanthropy ultimately look like in practice? In our indigenizing philanthropy series, we really intentionally used indigenize over decolonize. I think decolonize, it's it's almost become super extractive, right? It's like this hot buzzword and it's like really trendy and really desirable. And honestly, it makes me really uncomfortable to see some people use that terminology as an and this action when it's not being done by BIPOC 
institutions or, or leaders. And so I'm not saying not everyone can decolonize. We absolutely can. But to me, what's important is the leadership who's leading that conversation, who's facilitating those spaces and who brings the lived experience and the traditions of thinking about transformation. And so for us, we talk about in, our, in the article that decolonization and indigenization, and especially of a system, they're not synonymous, but they are both important and they're both complementary processes. And so the way that we understand it is that decolonizing focuses on unwiring colonial extractive and exploitative attributes that interfere with equity, justice, and balance in relationships and our environments. Whereas indigenizing replaces or rather returns us to our original ways of being and knowing, which supports reciprocal relationships between people and place. And so this unwiring process, right, the, this unwiring, which is decolonization and rewiring, which is indigenization, to us is a process that is reflected in our neural paths in our brain. And it's a transition that takes place over time with continual practice and patience to achieve this transformation. So to me, decolonization is a transition. Indigenization is a transformation. And for indigenization or indigenizing, it's through following indigenous leadership to influence and guide the collective towards traditional ways of being and knowing, one that is more in a reciprocal relationship with Mother Earth, with our environments, uh, with our kin, with all of our relatives, because Indigenous peoples still hold those practices, those ceremonies, those value systems, those creation stories, those cosmovisions, Many of us still hold on to those things, have held on to those things and protected those ways of being annoying for millennia. And many people have died to protect those things. And I think we're in a position now that we're seeing a lot of Indigenous leadership emerge because we're recognizing the deep need for Indigenous leadership, the deep need for for our traditions and our, our ways of being to guide the collective towards a more equitable and transformative future. A lot of people have clearly been harmed by the colonial systems of extraction and the commodification of earth, of everything, of labor, and even relationships as well. So when people talk about the goal of decolonizing, essentially anyone who understands the harms that resulted from colonialism may enthusiastically support such efforts and feel aligned with that. And this can include Black indigenous and people of color, immigrants, as well as just low-income working-class people who have really struggled being valued based on their productivity for this system rather than for their full humanity. But when we shift the dialogue to indigenizing, I think that becomes something that most non-indigenous peoples, even ones who yearn to dismantle the harms of colonization, may not feel qualified to engage with. So as a Native person leading an indigenous rights organization and movement, could you speak to your understanding Understanding of what it means for allies to show up in support of re-indigenization in ways that won't lead to co-opting, but ultimately can help us work towards our collective healing. Yeah, so I think, again, as we're thinking about indigenization and recognizing that decolonization is the first step in that, I want to encourage that 
we all can do our part to have those really intimate, interpersonal and reflective conversations with ourselves and how colonization, colonialism, capitalism, extractivism, all of that is showing up in our lives and in our surroundings. And then as we go along this decolonizing journey and then, you know, and taking the next step towards indigenization, absolutely, it's following indigenous leadership. It's learning from indigenous leadership. It's resourcing indigenous leadership. It's recognizing that not everyone is an expert in everything and that there are other people who we need to follow to do the good work in our communities, to do this, to, to embark on this necessary shift in the world. And, and for me, I believe that is through the leadership of BIPOC communities and specifically the leadership of indigenous women as we think about indigenization and we think about transformation and that Um, But to me, it also really starts with putting our money where our mouth is, right? And so, or or where our mind is too, right? And where our heart is. And so if we really want to make change in the world, then we have to resource Indigenous leadership. We have to resource Indigenous sovereignty. We have to resource Indigenous self-determination and Indigenous rights. And so... It's recognizing that I might not be an expert in this, but there are people who who are experts as it relates to transformation and and moving this world and shifting paradigms and moving it in a good way forward. Mm, Thank you for sharing that. And to wrap up our main discussion, what else do you feel called to share right now in terms of your recent work at Cultural Survival? And what actions would you like to encourage our listener take to try to embody what we had talked about here? Sure. So at Cultural Survival, we, since the beginning of this pandemic, we have set out on a a huge COVID-19 response campaign uh, where we have fundraised to really redistribute resources through grants, through our partners throughout the world. We've also curated and distributed life-saving content. And so you can find more about our work in our response to COVID-19 on our website at cs.org. But I share that because these systemic disparities or these systemic issues that have existed for Indigenous peoples as a result of capitalism and colonialism have exasperated in this pandemic. And Cultural Survival is one of the few organizations that are working at a global scale to ensure that Indigenous peoples are not left behind. And so as we're in this time of thinking about transformation, we're thinking about justice, we're thinking about equity, we also have to remember, and we're talking about BIPOC communities and the importance of their leadership. We can't forget the I in BIPOC. We can't forget about Indigenous peoples. And so as folks are considering supporting or collaborating with, or, you know, just in their own theory of change and social justice for them at a personal level, think about where do Indigenous peoples fit into that? And what can you do to support them? And one example is checking out our website and learning more about our work, learning more about our partners and what we're doing on the ground and um, finding ways to support Indigenous peoples locally, domestically, and internationally. You wanna know what 
what love is You want to feel it in your bones You want to have the answers, my friend But you never really know until the end And I don't know it's over What is an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? Sure. I do a lot of reading for work, so <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to, I'm reading a little bit less than I'd want to, but one social media account that really stands out to me, um, her name is Melanin Muskogee on Instagram. It's mel at Melanin, M-V-S-K-O. K-E, and she's this brilliant Black Native Afro-Indigenous activist, educator, and speaker, and she discusses how Black liberation and, and Indigenous sovereignty are intertwined and interdependent. Mm. What do you tell yourself to stay motivated and inspired? Mm. Often tell myself, and my mom tells me this a lot too, is you don't know where you're going unless you know where you came from. And so I remind myself a lot of the long line of strong matriarchs and indigenous women that I come from and my ancestors. And I try to remember their sacrifices that have made my life possible and their resiliency that that runs through my veins and my DNA still. And what makes you most hopeful for our world at the moment? Oh, yeah, I think for me, I'm I used to tell myself that I didn't think I would see change in my lifetime, the change that I wanted to see in my lifetime. But it is happening. And I'm trying to be more aware of those little things that are happening. And so I believe there's this awakening and there's this shift in consciousness and shift in behavior. And that's given me a lot of hope. And specifically youth and BIPOC leadership and BIPOC youth and Indigenous youth and seeing all the incredible work that they're doing, especially during a pandemic, right? We're seeing all this mutual aid, this organizing on the ground. It gives me so much hope in thinking about the future and the way that as across communities, we come together to support each other. Well, Green Dreamer, you can learn more about Daisy's work over at Cultural Survival at www.culturalsurvival.org. You can also find them on Facebook and Instagram at Cultural Survival and on Twitter at CSorg. You can also find Daisy on Instagram and Twitter at Daisy underscore Savannah. Daisy, thank you so much for joining us today and for your leadership in supporting efforts to indigenize philanthropy. We really look forward to learning from you continually and supporting cultural survival as well. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Hmm. Well, thank you for this opportunity to share a, a bit more about my experience and my work. But I, I would like to leave with the listeners today in recognizing that we're all related, that we're all kin, and that when we look at ourselves as part of an ecosystem, it invokes different responsibilities, different actions in all of us. So just to remember that we're all one, that we're all related, 
and to always remember and think about the ways that we can build reciprocal relationships, not only with each other, but our surroundings, our environment and the natural world. Green Dreamer, we've come full circle here. We are now gearing up to begin working on our next season of the show as this current one will wrap up with episode 300, which is a huge milestone for us. And we're so proud and grateful to have you along on this ride. That said, we really need to meet our next Patreon goal to be able to continue the show. So if you can afford to spare some change starting at just $2, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash greendreamer or make a one-time contribution at greendreamer.com slash PayPal. Remaining mostly supported by listeners directly, like you, is how we're able to cover such a wide range of topics and never feel the need to self-censor when we talk about corporate powers because we're not interested in working with or building relationships with corporations. We're interested in actually critiquing them and being able to be as unfiltered, unapologetic, and truthful as we can be in service of providing diverse perspectives for you. So I really do want to thank all of our past and current supporters for making our show up till now possible. And again, if you'd like to join in and if you can, you can support us at patreon.com slash green dreamer. If you're struggling financially, though, I know it's a difficult time for so many people. Please do not worry at all. Please take care of yourself and your loved ones first. And you can also support us by sharing the episodes that you're listening to with your friends and leaving us a five-star review in the podcast app. Anyhow, today's intermission song featured was Over by Luna Beck. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production intern is Spencer Carter. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I will catch you in the next episode.